Open Science Talk, the podcast about open science. My name is Per Pippinaspos, and today I'm joined by Ashley Farley, Program Officer of Knowledge and Research Services at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So what is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Yeah, so we are a large philanthropic funder uh, led by three co-chairs. It was, well, Warren has now stepped down, but Warren Buffett, um, Melinda Gates, and and Bill Gates. And we are now up to, it was just announced earlier this week, over $8 billion of funding. Those are very large numbers to try and conceptualize, but we work in uh, several main divisions and a lot of different smaller program areas, ranging from global health to global development, which is more focused on um, agriculture, nutrition, we have family planning, and then I sit in uh, more of the global health space, which is focused on you know vaccine de- development, malaria, HIV. Uh, we've had a major COVID response. And then we also do a lot of philanthropic um support in our our local regions, local areas, and then focus on education in the United States. Right. So it's predominantly the the applied sciences, you could say, Um, not so much the non-empirical ones. Is that correct? I think that's that's correct. And we we do fund a lot of different groups so we can focus on NGOs, supporting a lot of uh, more academic institutions, but also a lot of R&D or innovative technologies in more of the private and commercial sector. So really, there's a quite a quite a wide, wide range of what we look to to support and experiment with. But really, it's meant to uh, whatever we're doing, get us closer to our our goals um, and mission. And for a while, Bill had, uh, you know, really a focus on getting to zero, which I think is a, a very fascinating idea. I think uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has also had similar uh, goals and messaging. You know, the foundation is not meant to exist forever in perpetuity. Really, we're trying to solve a lot of these problems, eradicate diseases, poverty, uh, solving issues like that, and then and then closing up shop. Sounds great. And um, yeah. <laughs> you've been around yes. for some years now. Uh, when did it start and where did you get on board? I actually started as an intern as I was completing my master's of library sciences uh, at the University of Washington. So I was very lucky to be selected uh, through their internship program. And that's when I first learned about open access. I actually didn't learn about it uh, too much while going through the, the library program. I've worked in more of a paraprofessional position in libraries for most of my career, both public, academic, and then decided it was time to make it official. And uh, once I once I started the foundation in 2015 as intern, they haven't haven't been able to kick me out yet. And I've been extremely passionate about the topic of of open access and making sure that everything that we fund is openly available for anyone to access and build upon. And then broadening that further advocacy to other institutions and organizations so that, you know, my big dream is to get to a point where we don't even have to talk about open access. It's just how we operate. Right. Um, In Europe, we have this uh, plan S. Of course, there has been talk about open access for 20 years by now um, or or more even. Uh, But plan S came in 2018 and that's sort of really set the scene for some big political discussions and also discussions involving the general professor around 
uh, across Europe, you could say, have heard about these requirements of Plan S and everything has to be open access. Okay, how to do that? But you were early adopters overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and why is that? Um, Yeah, I think the biggest reason is our policy was already quite aligned with many of the principles of Plan S. So it wasn't a huge shift for us. And I would say it was a positive shift for us. When we launched our first policy in 2015, it was very focused on the gold APC model. Like if there's an open access option, we'd pay for it. If there wasn't, then guess what, grantee, you shouldn't publish there. And that that caused a lot of Not a lot. I shouldn't say a lot, but it, it definitely caused some difficult discussion, especially with our grantees that are, are larger, maybe labs or institutions or very privileged institutions. I'm talking about the Harvards, the MITs of the world, and they are used to being able to publish in, say, uh, the so-called high-impact journals. So having that shift was hard and painful, but we really focused on, you know, why we were doing this and why open access was important to us and really trying to shift away from the reliance on impact factor and educate our, our grantees on that. And that was, that was a, you know, a, a quite a process, but I do think, you know, we're continuing to see a shift away from that. So that was good. So when we came to, you know, plan S and, Uh, there are different options, and we were one of the really early adopters of rights retention strategy so that we formulated a way so that our grantee authors could have the opportunity to continue to publish in those journals, but we're not focusing on the version of record being open access, but sharing that author-accepted manuscript and open access repository with the CC BY license and having that be the desired route. That was that was a I think a really important and fundamental shift in how we view open access policy implementation and what we value. Um, so that that's why I, I think we were we were early adopters there. And just I have a deep belief in in collective action, and I think that's why the coalition has has had such a uh, ripple effect and impact. Is we are seeing large funders in the space that many already had strong but differing open access policies, so coming together, trying to align those implementation um, and, and practices as much as possible, that it had a stronger impact on the, the funding and research community. Um, how then do you monitor that recipients of your funding actually follow these requirements? Yes, yes, definitely. Also a strong believer that if you're going to have a policy, the implementation and compliance checking is is critical. So that's what's going to actually change the behavior of, of researchers. Right now, we partner with a nonprofit group called OA Works, and we've been working with them for the past couple years to really build up our capabilities in being able to not only track compliance, but actually follow up more effectively on non-compliance. And when I first started working on our open access policy, it was interesting to me to see that we weren't only checking the compliance of the policy for our grantee authors, but also the publishers that they're working with. So there have been times, and I think there used to be a, a hashtag or a, a Twitter handle uh, floating around for you know, research that was paywalled that we know should have not been paywalled. And we also have to constantly check to make sure that when we, you know, pay for open access or 
um, you know, we're taking the green open access route that, that that's being done correctly and, and things aren't being attributed a wrong CC license or, or a paywall. So we also use the data that's collected by OAWorks to follow up with publishers and make sure that we get what we've paid for and what's uh, aligned with our policy. And then also following up with grantees and non-compliance. And that's been a really um, actually great experience uh, with the model that we have. I definitely try to take more of a educational approach. Uh, a lot of our authors are sub-grantees. So they might not be inherently aware of our policies and how to um, how to achieve them without issue. So we try to approach it as a, as a learning mechanism and a, hey, you know, you're not compliant with our grant agreement, but here's how you become compliant quite easily. And we have more of a, a drag and drop mechanism of upload your author accepted manuscript. Uh, right now we use Zenodo as the backup repository for those, those um, articles. And we're also working closely with PubMed Central. So making sure that those documents uh, are also available there. Yeah. You mentioned OA Works and also Zenodo. I saw something that I believe OA Works has been part of, or perhaps even um, uh, developing uh, themselves. It's the called Share Your Paper Service. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if I understood it correctly, you can, if you are an author, you don't have to be funded by the Gates Foundation, but you are mm-hmm. an author. You have written something uh, scientifically, and you have the DOI of the article. You just type it in, and and then you get to know if it's allowed to yep. upload or not. And then it ends yeah, up then, uh, in Sonodo, is that correct? Or Yes. Yes. And now there's there's a, a lot more tools to help discover openly available versions across the internet, things like Unpaywall. Uh, you can, you know, if people are using Google Scholar, it's easier to tell when there's a PDF associated with it. So you don't have to always go to the version of record on the publisher's website, which I think is really important for making more of the green open access model successful. And that's that's the route that, you know, I, I think... Uh, as we see APC prices becoming just unattainable for even the most privileged institutions to be able to pay, that we're going to have to have other other routes to achieve open access and kind of in any way possible, but not at any cost. And that's, so that's why I like the share your paper aspect a lot. I do think that they've kind of rebranded that into their overall OA Works uh, set of tools, but that's the great thing about working with OA Works is we're focused on the open source aspect of it. Um, so my goal working with them is to build kind of these tools for, you know, especially funder policy compliance so that that isn't a barrier to have a policy. We really need more funders and institutions to have strong policies, monitor and follow up on non-compliance. I think to make that last push to really achieve open access as the norm and having access to tools or putting in workflows or having the kind of people, resources, time and energy shouldn't be a barrier. So I'm hoping that as we develop these things to work more automated, more effectively, more easily, um, they'll be adopted much, much more, more quickly. Then there seems to be political support, at least under the current administration, the the Biden administration recently, I think it was now in January, that they launched this year of open yes. science. Um, so this hit the news. And um, could you tell us something about the background and the context? Yeah, yeah. I, 
I love declaring a year of. I think that's fantastic. I think this really hits to a much needed kind of marketing and communications of open science. Uh, I've been now in this space since 2015. So it's been over seven years now. And it's, it's my, you know, I breathe this day in, day out, but I still forget that many researchers anywhere within their career, anywhere within any disciplines are still very new to the concepts and the tools and the practices. I think having, you know, the government endorsement and actually talking about it and make declaring the year of is, is really important. And they're encouraging other funders to, to join in and uh, make specific changes in their policies and practices that make I think open access much more achievable. And I think this comes from uh, some of the agencies, especially uh, say NASA has really gone all in in open science. And I think that makes a lot of sense, especially for, for their work where it isn't easy to share instruments or you know experiments or um, any of that to really promote open science so that there is the capability for others uh, to learn from previous research, data, reuse it, build upon it. So I think it makes a lot of sense for them. And I love seeing that they're now taking those learnings and principles and spreading them to other agencies and then encouraging other uh, funders and groups and institutions to join in as well, which I think is is really important. And I hope it uh, raises the awareness. I mean, we still, I think, at the foundation struggle a bit with the concepts of open it can seem kind of scary to, I think, many researchers, especially when we're working in delicate areas like family planning or uh, maternal child nutrition, where there are a lot of sensitivities in data sharing when we work with a lot of governments that aren't so uh, able or willing um, or very cautious to share data more broadly. And so you have to really be, I think, careful around how you use the phrase open. Um, but I, I hope that this helps uh, us kind of overcome some of those fears and we learn that it doesn't mean, you know, we are just posting all of this stuff on like Reddit for <laughs> comment um, or, you know, 4chan um, that we're 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 taking good care of that data, but making sure it's having the, the biggest impact possible. And to me, the open you know science principles are really, I think, about conducting research from you know start to finish i think even the grant making process could be much more open and transparent uh, to better the research itself and having that research process um, from start to finish just be more open transparent equitable and uh, available for anyone to participate yeah there's a discussion isn't there about what the openness can bring of good things but also the downsides maybe for instance, yeah. in peer reviewing, the people are concerned that you would actually have uh, problems, perhaps with um, with um, prejudices. Uh, people mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the paper, oh, this is written by someone whose name looks like this, then it's probably not a serious paper, uh, and they will be sort of prejudiced as a peer reviewer based on that. So, so you have these kind of issues not just in sensitive data. Do you you also have them on on a uh, publishing process, for instance? Uh, but you mentioned also now the funding and, and the application process. Do you, have you had some experience with, with a more open application process? 
I haven't had much experience with it. I do know that there are, I think, a couple other at least funders or groups that are trying to experiment with it. Or I think there's a database where you, as someone who has, uh, say, submitted a proposal, can uh, upload it and then it, it'll be available for anyone searching on that topic, which I think is great. And I think actually seeing it kind of led by uh, the grant writers themselves is is powerful. Um I just think it's it's an opportunity. I mean, one, you know, I do worry about the increasing just capacity of researchers trying to seek funding, the number of applicants. Uh, it just can be a bit overwhelming. And I think there's a much more effective way to have people uh, produce their ideas, then produce the proposals, and then be able to assess and follow up on the work. And a layer of, of transparency, I think, is, is just important. We don't typically at the foundation do RFP. So it is kind of a process that's done in coordination with uh, program officers from from the beginning. But we see a lot of really interesting or robust conversations and ideas that if they aren't approved or go forward, they kind of get lost in the ether. And I think uh, that's a, a disservice to the community. Uh, but I will say I'm, I'm a huge uh, proponent of open peer review. Uh, so I would like to see I think more of that become a norm and the kind of prejudices that you speak of, that person's going to carry them whether uh, they kind of recognize the article and the name or, or not. And I, I worry that having this kind of closed system just protects those bullies, so to speak, in a way and would like to see more openness and accountability and focusing on uh, the civility of discussing the research and the topic at hand and making that better than um, focusing on, you know, peer review right now, I think is very centered on whether or not it fits the brand or scope of a journal. And that's a bit of a disservice to the research itself. Yeah. Um, this is something that's debated. And I I, um, yeah. I think we could have a, a separate podcast just on, on aspects of open peer review and how to organize things the best way possible. But let's move on to the the other aspects then of, of open science. If if I may bring up the the UNESCO declaration, for instance, mm -hmm. this is yeah. um, this has a very broad emphasis on, on citizen science, on open data, as we already mentioned, but also this bringing together the, the, the broader pub, uh, uh, population and, and the, the academics. Um, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's another, you know, kind of building from the idea of the year of science and all of the different uh, policies and principles that institutions are producing is it helps raise that awareness and really, I think, encourages uh, groups to to act and, and to pick up and start to do some something somewhere. And I think that's also a bit of the beauty of open science is it doesn't have to be done a specific way. Uh, there could be parts of your research that you're very open with and sharing other parts that you aren't, you can go fully all, all in and, you know, from start to finish, or uh, you can just make sure that you archive a copy of your, your paper. Um, so I, I think, again, that, that helps bring the awareness. I'm curious to see, you know, how we measure the impact of, you know, such principles or statements um, when things are kind of opt-in or more of a guidance and principles. I do worry that that's not strong enough to affect behavior change. Of course, it is 
you know, it is uh, a bit difficult to enforce policies. And that's why we're trying to build tools and templates to make uh, things as easy as possible for organizations that don't have the capacity to really uh, have strong implementation or compliance checking. Um, but I, I do think that that really changes behavior is when something is is a requirement and is followed up on. Yeah, just to stop you there, sorry. Uh, you mentioned building services and infrastructures. You have also the your own research platform, the Gates Open Research Platform, I noticed. Uh, what is that for and, and how does it work? Yeah, that, talk about open peer review. Um, it's one of my favorite projects to work on. I think the reason we launched it in 2016 was one, to give our grantees a great compliant option for complying with our policy. It's a fully open uh, post-publication peer-reviewed model. I think it's also a way for us as a foundation to put our our name and our funding behind a model that I think truly encompasses where we should head in the future, which is you know shifting towards or building up a whole new you know publish, review, and curate. Especially when we look at kind of the state of preprints. So it's a it's a platform to me and a technology and a system that gets rid of kind of what I see is the scourges upon traditional publishing, which is that journal scope. Um, so, you know, any uh, we give our grantees the power to publish whatever they want on there. Um, the idea being we've already vetted them for our funding, that we trust the results, goes through open peer review. It does need to meet a certain standard before it's indexed in, say, PubMed or other indexers. So there are articles on there that haven't passed that that will kind of live and die on that platform. But I think it's great because that's all transparent to the reader. It doesn't end up getting published somewhere where it's kind of questionable of did it get through a robust review process? Did it not? You know, um, I think it, it gives more power to the readers. It has full versioning control, which I still can't believe other publishers have not adopted uh, so if you need to make a correction, if you need to do you know any kind of change, new version, correct data, add data, you can do all of that. It's very explicit why there's a new version, what was changed. And I, I think that better captures how research is done and how it's an evolving discussion, which we also can say is very important for the general public to know, to quell you know, misinformation or distrust of science because it is a process. We're not going to get it right the first time. And I think the traditional publishing system is just so, you know, one done publish, put that on my CV. It's it's doing a disservice to the broader way research is done. So that's why I'm I'm happy that we have really adopted that model and, and promote it. It's also been a great way for um, grantees that we have, say, in the global south, especially earlier career researchers that struggled to get the research published in more westernized journals. Um, we've been able to provide them with a place to publish and kind of build up their expertise and credibility instead of saying maybe going towards more of the, the predatory publishers, which I do not like that term. And uh, we could talk, have a whole podcast about that too. Um, but, but I think, you know, if, if we're using that in a very general sense, it does give them um, a bit of a, a stronger platform of which to, to publish on. So it's, um, it's a model and service I really appreciate. They're very willing to experiment with us. We're trying to have more supports for uh, editing, say, researcher, if English isn't their first language, we can provide services to help support that. 
And then I could also talk um, in length about the data sharing components. So when we talk about open science, like if you can't share your data in a, in a robust and, and fair way, on the platform, that's the only time that we would say reject an article. Uh, so they do an excellent job of actually helping our grantees uh, share data and repositories, link back to the article, uh, make sure that you know the methods and protocols are robust, uh, which is really important. So they actually have the we do have an underlying data clause of our policy. Compliance is pretty low because it's just it's so hard to correct that after publication or at publication. Uh, if journals don't require and help uh, authors share their data in a meaningful way, and Gates Open Research does, and so we have very high compliance there. Yeah. So this applies then to the grantees, as you said, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the Gates Open Research platform, which, from what I hear, sounds like a combination of a data archive and a preprint server and a mega journal. Uh, do you know all those concepts are together in one, or am I mistaken there? Uh, the only thing I would say is that they don't actually store the data. They would link out to it. So they would work with, say, the Dryads, the Figshares, the Notos, any of the data repositories out there. They would encourage deposit there and then link to it. So they don't store the data. But I agree on, on the rest of it. Spot on. Right. Any other thoughts now towards the very end of the podcast episode? Yeah, I just... Uh, I I... I think one thing I would love to also talk about and what we've been focused on with our, our new policy, or well, Plan S, sorry, in, in 2021, <laughs> um, was a real focus on, on rights retention. And I think that's a, a new concept for many authors. It's been uh, quite a, a meaty topic to discuss with our grantees and to help um, enact in our, in our publishing. Because uh, I think you know, the traditional system has just become so automatic and it's already quite arduous to publish a paper. Like trying to get a paper through a publishing system is, I, I, I think it's a miracle. So many articles are published per year. Uh, I, I would give up many a time before uh, trying to get it through all these systems and peer review. Um, but the, the rights aspect of it, I think, is so important. I think Publishers, especially the large commercial publishers, and I know I often overgeneralize uh, publishers when I talk about them, but really talking kind of about the big commercial ones, I think really have benefited from researchers wanting to get through the system to be able to have the final product, the published article, and to be able to share that that out that along the way they don't see kind of what they're giving up to get that and so we're talking a lot more about retaining rights um, making sure we're not signing you know full rights away to to your work uh, and understanding the implications of that and it often catches our grantees off guard when they want to go publish again and use a figure from a previous paper or a data set and then realize that they have to ask for it or pay for it from uh, the previous publisher. And so just trying to really uh, galvanize researchers around this topic, get them excited to understand that they should have you know, more power in this process and, and keep the rights to their work uh, and be emboldened by that. So that'd be my parting thought. Thank you so much, Ashley Farley, for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Open Science Talk is produced by the University Library of UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. 
thanks for listening.